Now, as Stephen mentioned a moment ago, we are looking forward to the amazing egg race coming up and a great need for candy there. I am assuming, of course, there's no need for reminder that if you bring a bag of candy to Stephen's office, there will be near mine a box of Krispy Kreme donuts. But it just goes without saying, right? In lieu of that, you can bring Chris, uh, you can bring Snickers or Reese's peanut butter eggs, either one. I will accept either of those, any of those at any time. So, all right, if you've got your Bibles this morning, open them to Luke chapter 11 with me this morning. Luke chapter 11, we're continuing our look through the Gospel of Luke. And as we are continuing that look, I want to ask you, how are your eyes? I don't, I, I don't mean... I don't mean necessarily these eyes, not necessarily, but how are your eyes? Mine, as, as I get older, they're getting a little fuzzier. I remember when I was younger in church and I would see people reading their Bibles and they were holding it like this, and how I would make fun of them. And you want to hold your Bible so you can see that from back here? And then suddenly at some point in my life, I became that person. And I hold it back like this. It's why now my sermon notes are in a larger font. I get the large print Bible. All of these things. I'm not talking, though, about your physical eyes. I'm talking about your spiritual eyes. How clearly are you seeing things in your life? How clearly do you see yourself? How's your spiritual eyesight? Look at Luke chapter 11 this morning, and you'll, you'll see what I mean in asking the question as we get to the end of our reading this morning. But let's look at Luke chapter 11, beginning in verse 29, and we'll go down to verse 36. The, the text is broken down into two parts this morning. The, the first part of the text, from verse 29 down to verse 32, Jesus provides us two illustrations in his teaching to the people. One of them is the illustration of Jonah. And the other one is the illustration of the queen of the south, the queen of Sheba. And he brings these illustrations to apply an application in the lives of the people to whom he's speaking, but he also brings it to application in our lives as well. And then the latter part uh, of this, it, it seems kind of odd as you're reading it. You'll, you'll see as we get through this, he kind of shifts the illustrations a little bit and he begins to talk about a lamp and about light and about our eyes. Look, look for that as we read through it this morning. Luke chapter 11, verse 29. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light, but when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, 
be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. What do we, what do, we do with the light that has been given to us? What do we do with what is happening spiritually in our lives? How do we respond to that? How do we deal with that? How do we take all of that in? L- let's go back and let's begin to look at the illustrations that Jesus gives to us concerning the generation to which he was speaking, but also the generation in which we live today, even to our own hearts. Let's look at what Jesus says to us and make application in our lives as well. He begins, first of all, by giving the illustration of Jonah in the beginning of this, the crowds were increasing and he begins to say to them this generation is an evil generation you look for a sign but he comes along and he says there's no sign that's going to be given to you except the sign of Jonah and what Jesus is doing is he is contrasting the people of his day the people who are listening to him with the people in the city of Nineveh to whom Jonah preached so let's go back and let's remind ourselves of this story of Jonah from which we read earlier this morning God calls to Jonah And he says to Jonah, Jonah, I want you to travel to the city of Nineveh and I want you to proclaim to them that judgment is coming upon them unless they repent. And Jonah, of course, was a good uh, Israelite. The Ninevites were not Israelites. They were a truly pagan people. And the Israelites, Jonah included, hated these pagan Gentiles. And he had no desire whatsoever to go warn them about the judgment that God was going to bring. He wanted instead God simply to bring judgment against them. He wanted God to rain down judgment upon the Ninevites instead of God perhaps being merciful to them and taking a chance that they might repent and God be gracious to them. And so God tells Jonah to go. Jonah tells God, no, I'm not going to do it. He gets on a boat. He gets on this ship, and he's taking off for the region of Tarshish as far away from Nineveh as he can get. But you remember the story. God brings a big storm. Jonah is blamed for the storm. The sailors on the ship throw him overboard. The storm subsides, and Jonah thinks he's going to die in the ocean. But God doesn't do that. God sends this big fish who swallows up Jonah. And then after three days in the belly of this fish, the fish comes to the shore in the direction of Nineveh and spits Jonah out and says, Jonah, God says, Jonah, you are going to Nineveh to preach the message that I have told you to preach. I know lots of times people have difficulty with that. You really believe that a fish swallowed Jonah and spit him out on the shore to go to Nineveh? You really think something like that can happen? Well, friends, listen, if we do away with the miracles that are referenced in the Word of God, we might as well do away with God Himself. Because if our God can create all that there is, it is no difficulty for Him to get a fish to swallow a man and have Him spit this man out. If God can bring Jesus back from the dead after three days in the tomb it is no problem for God to do this as well so if you have a problem with Jonah you have as much a problem with the existence of God himself you have as much a problem with the resurrection of Jesus itself so there's no problem with this at all if you think of all of the great things that God has done 
And so Jonah goes to the city of Nineveh, and he has, he has this incredibly gracious message for them. Here's his message. In 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. Yeah, that's a gracious message indeed, Jonah, that you proclaim to the city of Nineveh. He says to them, your wickedness deserves destruction, and if you do not turn to God, in 40 days, he's going to bring destruction upon your entire city. And you know what those pagans had the audacity to do? They repented. They turned to God. And God, true to his nature, true to his character, True to his promise, he was merciful to the Ninevites. And Jesus comes along and he says to the people to, who are hearing him preach, contrast them with the people of Nineveh. Think of what Nineveh had that these people, or did not have, compared to what these people who were listening to Jesus did have. The, the people of Nineveh were a pagan people. The people listening to Jesus were a moral people. The people of God, they've received the word of God. The people of Nineveh didn't know the Bible. The people listening to Jesus knew well the word of God. God and what God had said. The people of Nineveh had the audacity to repent while the people listening to Jesus had the audacity to not repent. They, they didn't know the word of God. They hadn't heard of God and yet the Ninevites, when they heard, they repented. And Jesus says, and you don't. That's why he says the men of Nineveh are going to rise up against you because they had so little and yet they turned to God and trusted in him. You have so much and yet you refuse to listen to God. You know, I think quite honestly that these, these words that Jesus speaks to his generation are just as true, maybe even more so true for our generation in America today. We, we gathered in this room this morning as much or as little as we know of the story of God, as much or as little as we know of the Bible, we know more than a great portion of the world around us. And even if you don't know a lot of the Bible, you, you know more of it than many people who are living in this world. And Jesus says... You, you don't know a lot about the Bible, looking at the people of Nineveh, and yet they repented. And yet today, these people hearing what I am saying and seeing what I am doing, even knowing much about God and God's word given, they refuse to trust in Him. It's interesting to me, we, we see this, this crisis in our world today of young people who, who perhaps are even raised in the church, but then when they get out on their own, they head off to college, and many of them in droves abandon the church, leave the church, and leave the teachings of Christ. And yet you have so many in that exact same environment who were not raised under the preaching and teaching of the Word of God, not raised to know a lot of the Bible, and yet they go off and perhaps through some sort of, of, of church encounter while they're in college, perhaps one of those organizations on campus, a, a campus ministry of some sort, they come to know Jesus. Those who were raised in it, those who heard the sermons, those who had faithful youth pastors, those who listened to Sunday school lessons, those who were taught by their parents, and they'll be satisfied with making sure they look good enough on the outside, externally religious, externally spiritual. They go to church just enough to keep their parents from being concerned about it, but inside hearts are darkened and hard. 
It's not just with a lot of our college students that we see this happening. We see this with people who are raised in the church. Some of you, perhaps, that have been in church all of your life, raised under the teaching and preaching of the Word of God, and yet your heart is hardened to the things of God. Your heart is consumed with you rather than with God and His Word. It's interesting that in the United States of America, given a a very loose definition of what it means to be a Christian, in fact, about 10% of the world's Christians are in the USA. And yet about 90 to 95% of Christian resources are consumed by this 10% of the population. We're overwhelmed. We're saturated with the things of the Word of God. Just think within your own life, how many Bibles do you have in your house? If you were to go home today and you were just to begin to take them off the shelf, how many Bibles would you find in your own house? How many do you carry in your pocket with you right now? I could pull out my phone right now, 25, 30, 40 copies of God's Word in all sorts of different translations, but the question becomes, what are you doing with them? Not do you have the Word of God, but what are you doing with the Word of God that is given? What's the point of all of this? The point of all of this that Jesus says to them and that He says to us is simply this, do not play external games with God. Christianity is a religion of the heart. and An unrepentant heart doesn't know God. It doesn't matter how much you know about your Bible. It doesn't matter how much you know about God. What matters is do you know God? Do you trust Him? Have you believed in Him through the work of Jesus Christ? If you haven't seen your need for Jesus and you haven't run to Jesus and begged Him for forgiveness, then you do not know God. Jesus says that the people around Him, they're they're saturated with it all. They've seen it. Unlike Nineveh, they've seen it, they've heard it, they know it, and yet their hearts are far away from it. They're condemned even more so because of the overwhelming amount that they did have. And Jesus looks at this, this saturated generation of people and he says, you're an evil generation. Why? Does he say that because they don't have a high view of God's Word? No, they had a very high view of God's Word. Did he say that because they haven't read God's Word? No, they've read God's Word. And yet for them, all of it was mere external. All of it was outside. There was not a change of heart that had taken place within them. Like the Ninevites, they repented and they turned to God, trusting in Him. But Jesus says, this generation, having all that they have, is unwilling to turn to Jesus. This this is a word for us today. This is a word that belongs to be given to us consistently. What do we do when the word of God is proclaimed to us? What do we do when we are confronted with the word of God given? It's an obligation that you have today simply by virtue of being here. When the Word of God is proclaimed, that obligation is given that you turn away from your sin and you turn to Jesus Christ trusting Him for salvation. When you do that, you find that life awaits, joy awaits, forgiveness awaits, life with Christ begins. Your life for all eternity changes. The sign is given of Jonah. 
But then there's another illustration as well in verse 31. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. The queen of Sheba mentioned the Old Testament book of 1 Kings. She had heard of the wisdom of King Solomon, and she was intrigued by that. There was something that resonated with her in that. She longed for that wisdom. She thirsted for that wisdom. And now Jesus here contrasts her with this generation hearing him speak. Again, what she did not have that they did have. She she didn't have wisdom of the knowledge of God. And yet here the people hearing Jesus speak were surrounded by wisdom, were in the very presence of wisdom. She had to travel a long distance to get from where she was to Jerusalem to learn of the wisdom of Solomon. These people had to travel no distance at all. Wisdom incarnate was in front of them. She paid attention to the wisdom that was shared with her. She believed in God. The people listening to Jesus wouldn't listen to the wisdom that he was sharing. And so he says, the men of Nineveh will rise up against you. The queen of the south will rise up in judgment against you. Look at all that they did not have that you do have. He says, in light of all that you have been blessed with, there's a standard placed upon you. You have been told, you have been warned, you have seen all of this. Now, turn and trust in the one who does it. Then from this, we have this third illustration. It's really the perfect illustration of the problem of these people. Uh, Jesus says, no one after lighting a lamp, in verse 33, puts it under a cellar or under, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. Jesus, Jesus talks just about a little lamp, just a, 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 little, a, a little lantern of sorts. For us, these kinds of things are mostly decorative. You go to someone's house and they have candles all around the home, and they're, they're mostly decorative, but in this culture, they weren't decorative at all. They were essential. No electricity back then. The, the house would be lighted at night with this lamp. Without it, you wouldn't be able to find your way around. Have you, have you ever been in total darkness before? Years ago, while I was still in high school, I worked at a company, and they, they put me down in the basement. Make of that what you will. There, was, there, there were two doors down there. One was a door to get outside, and the other was up the stairs, the door to get to the main selling area. It was an auto parts store. And one day, I'm sitting down there, no windows, no other doors at all, and all of a sudden, the power goes off. Now, I've been in homes when the power goes off before. Usually, there's, there's some sort of light from somewhere that you can see, maybe, maybe the moon, maybe stars, something of that nature. Maybe it's during the day, and you don't really think much of it. But literally, I was down there, the lights went off in total darkness, and just out of curiosity, I put my hand in front of my face to see if I could see it. I hit my nose when I did it, like an idiot. Uh, And you could not see your hand in front of your face. Total darkness. Have you ever been in darkness like that before? Here's the point. Jesus says you wouldn't ever take a lamp and put it in the middle of the room and then put a basket over it. 
you did that, the room would be dark. What's the purpose of the lamp? In the illustration that Jesus gives here, understand that Jesus is the light. No one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. He goes on to say, your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light, but when it's bad, your body is full of darkness. You see, Jesus has just spoken to us about the danger of unbelief. Given all of the resources that you have heard, all of the things that have been shared with you, the danger of unbelief is that those who have repented without much knowledge stand in condemnation over you. And now he comes along and he says, how's your eyesight? It's not just an issue of what are you looking at. It's an issue of what are you seeing. Jesus, as the light, is making the point that if you don't see him, you're not going to be able to see anything rightly. If you don't see him, you're not going to be able to see anything rightly. And if you don't believe and trust in Jesus, you're going to be living a life that is darkened. That's why Jesus said in John chapter 8, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. One of the most amazing things about all of this that Jesus teaches takes us back and ties all of this in again with the desire that this people had for a sign. In verse 29, this generation is an evil generation. Why? Because it seeks for a sign. Now, if you were able to be here with us last week, do you remember what we encountered in the Gospel of Luke? There was a man who was demon-possessed, and the demon had caused him to be mute. For however long it had been, the man had been unable to speak at all. What does Jesus do? Jesus heals him. So for the first time, this man begins to speak. And however long it had been, the man begins to speak. And what do these people do on the hills of that? First of all, they accuse Jesus of being in league with Satan. That's how he has this miraculous power. But then they come along and they say, no, we want a sign. Seriously? What did you just see? We saw one of the greatest signs that's ever been given. This man who was possessed of a demon, this man who was mute, is now able to speak. Implicit within their allegation that they want a sign is that Jesus had not given them enough evidence. Some of you today are like that. Your hearts are far from God and you say, if God would just do this, then I would believe. If God would just heal this person, I would believe. If God would just open this door, I would believe. And we try to make these bargains and these deals with God. What we're really doing is we are blaming God for not giving us enough evidence. When literally all of creation screams out that He is real. And then even beyond that, we come to the resurrection of Jesus the issue for these people was not a lack of light. The issue was a lack of sight. So what does Jesus say to them? He says, the only sign you're going to get is the sign of Jonah. R remember when he was ingested by that, that, that huge fish? And he was spit up out onto the shore. 
How long was he in the belly of that fish? He was there for three days. Jonah in the belly of the fish for three days, and Jesus says, that's the sign you're going to get. Even all the way back then, God was foreshadowing what he's going to do in his son Jesus. All of it pointing forward. The story of Jonah and the Ninevites is not the story of Jonah and the Ninevites. It's the story of Jesus and humanity that we need to trust in Jesus Christ. That we need to repent and put our faith in Him. And Jesus says, here's the sign you're going to get. Jesus, like Jonah, will be laid away for three days and then He will be back. That's exactly what Jesus did. He went to the cross for your sin. He went to the cross to pay the penalty that you owe to this holy and righteous God. He died a death he did not deserve. He was buried, and on the third day, he rose again. Why? To conquer sin and give you life. That's why we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Why did He do that? He did that for you. The sign is great. The sign is magnificent that Jesus has conquered sin, that Jesus has conquered Satan, that Jesus has conquered death and hell, and He awaits to give you life if you repent and trust in Him so that we might be saved. That's why Jesus ends, verse 36, if then your whole body is full of life, Having no part dark, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. As Christians, we're told that we have been brought out of darkness into light. As Christians, we're told that we walk in the light. As Christians, we're called children of the light. And so the question remains for you today, are you living in the light of Jesus? Have you trusted Him? Have you believed in Him with all of your being? Not, not making this foolish mistake of saying, I'll clean my life up and then I'll come to Jesus. You can't. It's impossible to be clean enough for Jesus. You come to Jesus and He cleans you up and makes you righteous and holy and pure. With all that has been entrusted to you, what will you do with Jesus this day? Will you trust Him? Will you come to Him, finding Him receptive? He will turn no one away who comes to Him. Will you trust Him? Or will, like those who listened to Jesus, will you find yourself with increasing condemnation by those who had so little and yet trusted in Christ. When you have been given so much and so many opportunities, will you not run to Jesus? Father, this morning we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word and we thank you for the clear teaching that Jesus has given. 
we pray, Father, that we would have faith to trust this message. Father, I pray today for those, however many they are, who do not know Christ. Father, I plead with you today, would you open the eyes of their hearts that they might see Jesus, that they might run in confession and repentance to him. I pray, Father, for those of us who do know Jesus, that we would be faithful as you strengthen and empower us to do so, to lift up that light so that others might see him. We ask this in his name. Amen. This morning we, we come again to celebrate Lord's Supper together with one another. We we will do this as we have done in the past. We will invite you to come from either side, down the middle. Take, take the wafer that represents the body of Christ. And as you eat it, make your way over and grab the juice. Take the juice back to your seat. We'll take it collectively as a church this morning, indicating both the individual responsibility and the collective responsibility that we have as followers of Christ. We internalize these elements to say, we proclaim again that we belong to Jesus, that he has made us his own. Today, if you're a follower of Christ, we invite you to take part in this meal together with us. If you're not a follower of Christ, we, we, we don't seek to bring shame or reproach against you in any way. We don't look down upon you, but we invite you to observe this meal this morning. We invite you to see the gospel played out in object lesson this morning. The wafer that represents the body of Jesus that was given on our behalf. The drink that represents the blood of Jesus that was shed on our behalf. We invite you to come and internalize these elements together with one another as we share this time together. Invite Pastor Stephen to come and our deacons to come to assist us within this. And after we pray, we invite you to come take part in the meal together with us. Father, we are grateful to you again for this time. As we take part in observing Lord's Supper, we do so with the deep recognition of what exactly is involved in our salvation. That this was not just a, a spiritual exercise, but that this cost the life of our Savior. That He paid the penalty, death, for our sins, that we might not have to taste death eternally. We thank you that you raised him to life again so that we could receive his victory. We pray that as we take this meal together with one another, we would be reminded of all that Christ has done on our behalf. We pray this in his name.